Hey, you've made it to Sprayspace, where people managing social media accounts come for community. This year, our focus is social media for good. Together, we can work to make social media a landscape for healthy online communities to grow. Sound good? Then come along with us on the Sprayspace podcast, where we share what we know, learn what we don't, and strive to make social media better for us all. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Spry Space Podcast. I'm Lacey, and today we are finishing up our mental health-focused month with a very special guest and a good friend of mine. Delina Meyer is here, and she is the founder of Deviant Compassion Consulting, which was formerly Way Enough Decision Coaching. She delivers expert training, coaching, and strategy for people who are making waves, doing good business, or building trauma-informed communities. Her goal is to make sure that helping doesn't hurt. Delina and I have been friends and colleagues working on projects together for many years now, so I am so delighted to have you here. Welcome, Delina, to the podcast. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I'm I'm out gallivanting around, so it's nice to be able to have conversations that aren't uh, just focused on on work in the productivity sense. I agree. These these conversations these conversations are always kind of a nice respite where we can look back and reflect on things that we don't often have the opportunity to reflect on. So I like it. Okay, before we get into the meat of everything, I like to ask first question of the show. Tell me about a piece of social media content that you've seen or taken in in the last week or so that brought you joy. Okay, so it was this. Uh, I'm in this really deep reflective space anyway, because some weird conversations happened. I'm out of town and then some things have happened and I'm like growing as a business owner and doing so much output of different communication stuff. Um, and what was funny is I kept seeing this one meme all week and it was just like the standard black screen, white words, somebody had typed mm-hmm. a, a tweet. Um, <clears throat> and it was, uh, I can't quote it directly, but it was basically, I'm like, I don't want to be called resilient. I'm, I'm tired of my own strength. Mm. I want to have a life of, of ease. And it wasn't talking about a life of ease. Like I want to be so wealthy that I don't have to do anything. It was just talking about a life you don't have to recover from. Ooh, Yeah. And it, and it hit me over and over, you know, we talk about ACEs and, and adverse childhood experiences and toxic stress and complex PTSD in our work around those things that happen as a child that change how our brains um, work and how our lives unfold. And um, as a person with high trauma, running a, a successful consulting firm, it's really weird to, to, to live in both of those places, this, this like highly activated nervous system that's always kind of panicky and also this for the first time ever, this place of like breathing room. Mm. Um, and so I'm jolty. And so I kept seeing that all week. And at first it hit me really hard. And I was all like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, I don't want to have to be resilient. I, well, I'm like, I'm like, yeah, I feel you. Right. I really <laughs> like, I felt that I felt, I say that. And I felt that. And then I came on this, um, on this trip, I'm in Spokane and, and met with a couple people. And one of those conversations was about envisioning a life beyond where I am and, and my business and really transitioning out of, out of the day-to-day grind and into leadership of my business, um, in a different way. And I was really upset. I was very upset by that because it was, it was the smack in the face of, I only got to that. Like I could only envision stability. I could, I could mm. be like, I want a life of stability. 
And it never occurred to me to have a life of more ease or a life of breathing room. And so um, when I was challenged with that, that meme came back and it's, and I saw it again, like four more mm. times, because you know, the algorithms, right? If you stick mm-hmm. on something, it, it shows you. So like the internet knows that I needed to keep seeing that. Um, so, <laughs> the wisdom um, of the algorithm. <laughs> oh, Facebook. Uh, but I'm so grateful for that. And it, and now it brings me joy. It's kind of a heavy joy, but it's a joy because because it was it was this this piece that I was able to grasp onto and go, okay, I don't actually know what that looks like for me. I know what I think it looks like, and I don't want to be so comfortable that I lose empathy. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't ever want that. I don't need that. And my needs are met. So now what can I do? Mm-hmm. Okay? Um, and and so that, that, you know, that's a heavier joy, but that was that meme that, that, that felt that that was really good. Memes, man. Memes, man. All they can bring to us. Well, and I'm really, I'm super social media old, so I don't even know if that counts as a meme. Like I thought a meme had to have funniness, but I thought if you take a picture of a tweet, that's also a meme. Yeah, can be. It's it basically, it's like any joke about something that you po- post online with a graphic. Yeah. Okay. Well, it wasn't a meme, but it was, a, it was a post. So yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so that's that's, well, that's where I'm great. at. Okay, so let's let's dive in a little deeper now. So all month long we've been talking about social media mental health at Spry and on this podcast, and we've, you know, talked quite a bit about our own mental health when using social media. But I wanted to talk to you a bit about how as people who are managing social media accounts, how we can be a bit more mindful of actually creating content that is trauma informed and and just adding a layer of, of knowledge and intentionality to the content that we're putting out. And I think that you're going to speak really well to this. So for people who have never even heard of the phrase trauma-informed before, can you explain what we mean when we say trauma-informed? Yeah, it's, um, it's, a, it's a great question because it was used primarily, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to explain it in a little bit of a wonky way, but it was used primarily um, originally in healthcare settings, right? There's a difference between going to the doctor and them saving your life in the ER versus going to the doctor and them treating you like a number because they have 52 patients and you're number 47, right? right. Mm-hmm. And so trauma-informed care as a, as a thing turned um, was in human services and healthcare. And it's the way that we ask organizations to be responsible for how they deliver services. Okay. It's a way that we need to think differently about the experiences of the people that we interact with as um, as service providers primarily. So that's the original, the original, right? Like recognize that people have experienced things that have changed how they view the world, how they interact with the world, and um, respond appropriately and avoid re-traumatization. So there's R's, these R words, right? Avoid re-traumatization. And that looks like things like have a calming office environment, or it looks like train your staff in cultural competence and help them understand the signs of trauma so that they can kind of see, oh, this escalated behavior probably isn't a dangerous thing. It's probably a person who's dysregulated and needs empathy more than judgment. Um, If we are to take it into uh, hot button issues, it means, I don't know, community police officers not shooting people with mental health crises. Mm -hmm. Maybe, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So when we... When we look at that, um, when we look at what does trauma-informed actually mean, it means to be informed 
about the reality of other people's experiences and to recognize that how we respond can either help that person regulate their nervous system and engage like a good human, um, or we can actually create more trauma to a person who's already barely surviving in a system that's not designed for them. And, and especially... Especially like that's why I like so much the phrase that you use, making sure helping doesn't hurt, right? Because so often these people who maybe are um, responsible for re-traumatization, they're trying to help, right? A lot of times that's that's the whole point that people are are there in the situations that they're in is to get help. And so how do we make sure that as we're helping, we're not hurting more the people who've already been hurt. Well, and and it's so hard because it's you know as it is if we think about like social media managers, most of the social media manager stereotypes that I think of are people who are trying to be funny, clever, and engaging, entertaining, informational. Entertaining. Right, oh, yeah. you want it to be interesting, and so. So what are you looking for? You're looking at some sarcasm at times. You're looking at um, things that cause a little bit of a ruckus. You want to, you know, maybe be a little spicy or a little seductive or a little mm -hmm. um, pokey. Mm -hmm. and, and all of those things, you know, it's not one or the other, right? Anybody who's been through some serious stuff has gallows humor. So <laughs> two thirds of your listening audience, at least, and social media folks, I think are probably cut of a similar cloth to social workers as in, you don't do this work unless you've had something wrong happen to you because it's a draining work, mm -hmm. right? So you have to have like a, I think you have to have a, a, a resilience already to you to do social media well, mm -hmm. um, because you will, all of us have had something where we thought it was really funny or we thought it was clever or we worked really hard and it just sank. It mm -hmm. just tanked or it blew up in our face and it yes. was like really terribly wrong. Yeah, I got I've had many situations where I've posted something and I have close friends texting me like, are you sure that you want to post that? You should probably make some edits to that right away. I'm like, OK, all right. What are we? <laughs> mm -hmm. Wrong so, audience. Wrong audience. <laughs> so, you know, so that's that's the piece, right? We as humans. So the trauma informed started as an organizational level challenge, policy okay. practice. But as humans, we can all be aware of and curious about in a respectful way, not curious about what happened to you, but, but it means going from asking what's wrong with you. Why are you responding to my stuff like that mm -hmm. versus I wonder what happened to make that person freak out about a zombie post. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Or I wonder what happened. Like, why would someone be so upset about, you know, ab about something that seems really innocuous to other people? And sometimes that's an actual PTSD trigger. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes it's not a trigger, although we misuse that word a lot and we all need to be really mindful about what we're doing with that word. But sometimes it's not a PTSD trigger, but it is something that hits one of our buttons that makes us feel gross, you know? So, so that's, that's where that kind of lays is it's not just cultural okay. competence. It's, something more. So then let's talk about how we, what kind of practices we could do to make sure that we have a filter of this trauma-informed, can I call it a filter, like a trauma-informed filter as we're creating social media content? What are some of the things that we can do to make our content more trauma-informed? 
we talk about it from a communications lens. So you can okay. use a filter or a lens or a checklist. I know somebody who, um, who, who took these things we're about to talk about and actually made a checklist. Does it do this? Does it sound like this? Mm. Have I looked at this? And they just, that's part of their checklist, the same as you would check it for grammar and check it for the resolution and all those things, right? When we talk about trauma-informed communication or communicating through a trauma lens, it's not about being gentler for the most okay. part. We often will think that, oh, I just need to say it nicer. Softer. Nah. Mm-hmm. Maybe, but it depends on what it is, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the reason we have content warnings or trigger warnings is because if we're going to talk about something that is, mm. is a widely known trauma for mo- for many people, things like um, sexual abuse, assault, domestic violence, um, and those kinds of really intense person per, of personal violence crimes, um, those types of situations and, and talking about them are necessary. We need to talk about them, but we need to give people a moment, a pause to, to scroll on by or to breathe and get ready for that. So one of the pieces I've seen that is a real basic thing is when somebody is, so I'll use Facebook because that's my main um, piece, but I've seen it on other platforms too, but you'll say, it'll say, content warning and then the subject so content warning domestic violence and then they'll do four or five lines of like just dots so the rest of of the preview you see is blank so that way you don't have to see that thing unless you choose to actively so it's mm. the word it's the typing version of what facebook does with blanking it out if it's violent mm-hmm. or whatever. it's a way for us to share our personal experiences or share um really um important topics but with with a pause button for people who don't who don't have the regulation skills to 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 sit through that. And I know it sounds maybe um, overly sensitive at times, but if you you know, it's like if you just lost your dog and all your friends are posting about their dogs and you see all this dog stuff and you weren't ready for that, it's just going to poke unnecessarily, right? Mm-hmm. That's a great practice. I have seen it on personal posts before, you know, didn't quite, I'm, I, I have led a privileged life where I have experienced very little trauma. So to me, I was kind of like, oh, how interesting. That's an, that's an interesting little practice to put in. But as soon as you're connecting it, that that's a really good trauma informed practice, I start to think about all the ways that that could be uh, actually put into play from a business or brand perspective too. Because we talk about serious topics on many of our brand, nonprofit pages, all sorts of things. And so having that little content warning with whatever the subject is and some space between, I can see that working on Facebook. I can see that working on Instagram very well. So that's a really good practice. I could see being able to be put into place pretty easily. And, and you can do that visually sometimes as well, um, but depending on how you do a collage or how you do, how you do a your gallery or galleries. So, uh, because I'm not a spatial person, I can't explain to you what you should do, but social media people out there, um, look at it visually too. When somebody sees the first thing, can you give them a pause button so that you don't unintentionally make their day really crappy? Right. Because the thing about the nervous system, the thing about what trauma does to our brains is when people are super sensitive to something like that, they're not choosing that. That is literally happening to them. That's why we call it a trigger because Mm. it triggers 
the nervous system response to something that's happened previously because our nervous system doesn't know that it's not happening again. Okay. So we don't want to trigger traumatic memory or association. Now we also have freedom of speech and we also have important conversations to talk about. So I don't want anyone misinterpreting this as, as we can't talk about hard things or people are just so sensitive. Mm, That's, that's a cop out. So no, we're not Mm -hmm. doing that. What we are saying is, as communicators, we have an obligation to get through the noise if we want our message heard. And sometimes the noise is environmental and sometimes it's internal. So if you want to be an excellent communicator, you put your wants aside and your comfort aside, and you do a couple extra steps to help your audience get their the, the message that you want to send. Um, so that's really the important like shift is you have to you have to take yourself out of the center. It's not your message that's most important. It's your audience getting it that is. Mm-hmm. That's very good. So as we're working on, you know, creating our personas, right? We have these ideas in our mind of who our audience is that we're going after. I wonder too about a practice of considering what traumas might have, you know, what traumas might be included in this group of people as we're creating these personas so that we can be mindful of that. Would that be a practice you think would be beneficial as well? Yeah. I mean, if you think about this right now, we have this global trauma of COVID and then we have um, national and international situations uh, where certain groups of people are being actively harmed by other groups of people. And that's an ongoing thing. Um, one of the one of the pieces that we are really clear about um, in working with the work that we do with the Latino community is like I am not Latino, so I have an extra obligation to vet my stuff, to listen to the wisdom of community, and to get out of my own way about certain things. Um, it also means that if I'm going to talk about things like DACA or um, or immigration or kids. Uh, We don't use the phrase kids in cages unless we are forwarding something, you know, we're sharing something from a Latino community centered organization, because that is a phrase that creates a nervous system response that isn't helpful. So Mm -hmm. we can talk about the need for humanitarian responses and we can talk about solidarity with our community in ways that don't use buzz phrases that harm or buzz phrases that, um, trivialize or 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 do that zing of Mm -hmm. sensationalization not because we don't need to care about kids in cages because people in cages is bad Mm -hmm. right um but we do know that this is a complex conversation and that and that as communicators our job is to be really mindful about what what that community is experiencing that I wouldn't necessarily realize. So if we look at COVID and like teenagers, do you want to speak to teens right now? Um, and you want to talk to them about college, then you better be aware of how much the dream of going to college has been extraordinarily blown to smithereens. Mm-hmm. Like it's gone because so many kids don't don't know what that's going to look like or so many things were disrupted with employment or so many you know so many different pieces of this are different so so how we talk about prom or how we talk about college or these milestones of senior year um those things didn't exist for anybody graduating last year and most people graduating this year mm-hmm. they're not getting that experience so we would want to change how we're talking about those things um, change how we're talking about milestones and and graduation as a as a as a thing. We would 
we would need to recognize, right, that they don't get to have that experience that most of the rest of us did. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's one of the pieces when we when we talk about that, what we're really talking about, if you take the trauma piece out of it, is the most important communications and marketing and PR lesson we all should have learned by now, which is your message doesn't matter if it is not receiver centered. It's not about you. It's just so not about you. So you either design it for who you're talking to or don't bother because mm. you're just creating more noise otherwise. Mm. That gave me all the goosebumps. It's so true. We're not talking at people. And we j- it's so easy for us to just choose to talk at people, right? There, it's You can bust out 20 social media posts in an hour if you're just talking about all of your features and you're talking about how great you think you are and it's so easy. Does anybody care? Like, does it matter in the least? Does it does it enhance the world in any way? Does it build any relationship? Well, people don't care about being informed by you until you've engaged them. And engagement is a relational term, not a communications term. Mm-hmm. So when we talk about engagement, we talk about the capacity to connect. And if you haven't done the mental work of looking at how the people you want to talk to connect with the information and what barriers they might have, or maybe not as barriers, this is all this isn't all about prevention of of, of triggers or prevention of you know of of, uh, of insensitive information. It's also if I'm talking to single parents or people who've experienced the criminal justice system, or if I'm talking to high school students right now who have who have experienced this. I also recognize that all those people have a wisdom about those systems that I may not have. And so if I'm talking about anything connected to that, I want, I want to talk about it the way they talk about it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, there's a lot of conversation. I'm coming back to the Latino community. There's a ton of conversation about Latinx as a term versus Latinos. Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't know a single person who refers to their own community as Latinx, mm-hmm. right? When talking about it personally. But it's an academic term. It was a public health term that was intended um, to be respectful to um, to all genders and all people. So it wasn't masculinizing or feminizing, but it was um, it was encompassing and, and inclusive. The thing about that is, and I'm not saying nobody uses that term. I'm saying I don't specifically know. Is that you you have to know how those folks are going to engage with that because some people need that. Right. If I'm talking to to folks from, you know, from a non-binary gender place, I'm likely going to use that term. Mm -hmm. But if I'm if I'm talking to grandparents or um, probably 45 and older, the likelihood of me using that term is is should be lower because that's tradition matters a lot in that community. And so they're not necessarily going to see it as a positive. They might see it as a negative. So I want to match my terminology to them wherever appropriate. Right. So I heard you say a few minutes ago, the idea of, you know, people are just so sense, you know, it's not that people are just so sensitive, but I hear that so much. Right. And as we're creating content and, and there are people saying, it doesn't matter. People are just sensitive. They're going to say what they're going to say. They're going to respond how they're going to respond. Yeah. It's, it just makes me so mad because I just think there is this, this level of care that you can put into the content that you're putting out that really you should, I don't understand why people are so resistant to the idea of putting effort into 
using language intentionally. You know, I, I got to put on my, I'm not a therapist, but I pretend to be one regularly. Not really. <laughs> I don't pretend to be a therapist. <laughs> um, uh, you know, okay. So here's my psychoanalysis of people who are reticent to change their behavior. Um, if I'm being generous, I have opinions that are probably not trauma informed. Um, <laughs> it seems to me, you know, as we're, we're changing our name, right? We're changing our name from uh, something that I really liked when we first started the business. That was about about uh, trying to be like more corporate, and it was trying to be to uh, to speak to an audience. It was trying to speak to an audience um, who would understand the reference that I was making um, to crew. And if you if you've ever done rowing, you understand this way enough thing. Um, but it had nothing, and when I say nothing to do with me, I mean nothing to do. Mm-hmm. With me. Um, and that's always been a real sticking point, right? So when we changed our name to to really reflect, we're not like changing who we are. We're actually stepping into who we are, okay. right? Mm-hmm. You know, we're not changing what we do. Um, we're just really um, embracing and and being fully present into who we are. And so with Deviant Compassion, the the tagline that we were trying to find was something that our audience could could see and feel and hear. And we wanted something that was actually visceral. Okay. Um, I see all this to say, um, when I think about change and I think about what I have to do to change, the first thing is I don't change unless I have to. I don't change unless I'm doing it wrong, right? So if we're asking people to change, then the natural response mm. can include this, this shame about having been doing it wrong for so long. And so what uh, what we chose for our tagline was shameless change. Oh, oh, I like that. I mean, well, I'm a little proud of it. I got to tell you, I'm a little proud. I really like it. The merch <laughs> is going to be off the hook. It's gonna be <laughs> so, but, um, but aside from like the, the fun, the fun marketing person, or, you know, part of that, people don't change until they're uncomfortable enough to have to, mm-hmm. but when we are not the ones that are that uncomfortable, change brings up for most people, and this is why we talk about like white fragility, it brings up fragility because we are feeling shame for, for making a mistake because we're in a culture that prizes a false sense of perfectionism. And if you're not perfect, you're not good. Mm-hmm. So if we're saying, hey, you should change that, we're also saying, hey, you're not doing it right. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that people just get really defensive and really reactive to the notion that they've been doing it wrong. Um, But the reality is, if you're a communicator, you've probably been doing it wrong and you've probably been doing it right and right and wrong or effective and not effective mixed together because that's what humans do, right? Mm -hmm. So, so for us, we, you know, I see, I see that, that reticence and that excuse making and the fastest way, of course, to avoid shame is to blame someone else and deflect onto something else. Right. Mm -hmm. So when we're talking about communicating from a trauma-informed lens, it's an inside out process. We have to start with ourselves and say, oh, I may not have been paying attention in this way and I can change how I do that. And I don't have to feel bad about not realizing this before. Um, and I don't have to know all the right answers to it. But but I'm convinced that people don't change things like communication style because it, it hits a shame button in them that they've been doing it wrong. And they're just, it's just too hard to accept shame. 
to it, to accept, to face it and call it what it is Mm -hmm. because shame says we are not good enough instead of we maybe could do better, you know, guilt or, or change oriented folks, people who are growth mindset oriented. I don't like that term, but people who don't have a high degree of shame don't struggle to change quite so much Mm -hmm. because, because they recognize that, that who they are, isn't an issue. Our behavior can change when it needs to change. So I would say that communicators can do themselves a really big, uh, a really big favor by engaging with, if you're not, if you're not comfortable making that change, why is that? What's, what's coming up for you and be, you know, give yourself that trauma lens of, huh, I wonder what has, I wonder what has happened in my own life that makes me feel so sensitive or so um intense about this topic interesting interesting the projection of people saying other people are so sensitive but is it actually us that are so sensitive to change right are we so sensitive at being called out on our work that it's us that is so sensitive not the other people who are being called sensitive for their reaction you know, I think whether we're talking about whatever flavor of privilege we're talking about, whatever flavor a person has, they will likely be pretty fragile and pretty sensitive to someone saying maybe that place of privilege that you're in, whatever kind of privilege it is, whether it's white, you know, white privilege or class privilege or um or communications privilege, right? And I, I'm not just making up a term. If you have the power of the microphone, mm-hmm. that is a form of power and privilege. And so if someone's challenging you to use that differently or to share that power by by giving more power to your audience, well, if you've never been asked to move that or shift that, then that feels like an attack. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's, it's, it's just not. Mm-hmm. It's, it's asking folks to do that. So I think, I think that that the notion that when we're really, when we're really quick to be, to belittle um, or criticize somebody for asking us to make an accommodation, um, the, the likelihood of them being the, the sensitive one. one, you know, I'm just like, <laughs> if the shoe fits, wear it, honey, uh, kind of thing. If I'm going to be somewhat gentle, I don't know. I like how you said though, when, when you were kind of giving the self-talk of a communicator and the way that you said, maybe I just haven't been paying enough attention, you know, like it's really, it's not like people are, communicators are intentionally neglectful. Uh, maybe some are probably, but most communicators, you know, come to this place because they do have an ability to know their audience. They do have an ability to communicate to wide groups of people. And so it's not like you're bad, but there is extra levels of research. There's extra levels of listening that can be done in order to serve the community better. That's, I mean, yeah, that's, that's called professional development. Yes. Right. I mean, we've all like, here's the, I can talk to teens pretty easily, but not nearly as easily as I could 15 years ago. Mm -hmm. Shocking. (laughs) Um, I can talk to employees really well. I can, I can code switch and, and bridge language that's really complex or policy oriented into, into something more great. I can, um, I can do that for, for employees, but I, I really struggle with other audiences. There are audiences that I don't actually understand very well. And I have to work extra hard to empathize with some of those audiences because I haven't been there. Mm-hmm. Right. So I'm transitioning from a consultant 
to a company like owner. I mean, it was an owner, but now it's like, I'm going into the CEO kind of realm and it's a trip mm-hmm. because I think I have some, I have some ideas in my head about how CEOs operate. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't like them <laughs> uh, because I, uh, I have some assumptions about wealth and privilege and power and how we use those things and how those things separate us, right? How they separate. And I don't want to be that. But at this stage, a lot of my audience is, are going to be C-suite, you know, executives. And, and I've never operated in the corporate universe in that space um, from that lens. So I have to do extra work to, sh- to know them, to understand their needs to see things from their perspective, which is sometimes difficult because I've seen things from the the, Im, the person being impacted by those mm-hmm. perspectives. You know, I've seen a lot of the wrong parts, but there's tons of good parts. Mm-hmm. And so, so I think that that's the other thing is when you try to become a trauma-informed communicator and you're trying to create content that has gone through that lens or that filter, you will be faced with every bias and assumption you have. Because because what we're really talking about is receiver-centered, empathetic communication. Are you putting yourself to the best of your ability into the audience's shoes and perspective? Can you say that phrase again? Receiver-centered, empathy-based or uh, empathy-driven, right? Mm -hmm. So receiver-centered, empathy-driven communication just is the heart of trauma-informed content, right? And and that doesn't mean being gentle. It means being intentional and being not about us. Being informed, really, having done the work. Mm-hmm. And responsive, not just I know people have trauma and I don't want to be a jerk about it. It's I'm going to respond by changing how I tell the story. If I know that I'm talking to people for whom this this version of the story might not work. And you know, it's, it just, it takes more work. There's no way around that. It takes more work. If all you have to do is tell people that there's a, you know, a truck dealership down the, down the street. <laughs> cool. But if that truck dealership wants to reach people who aren't being served by other dealerships, then they need to do extra work. Mm-hmm. Because if those people aren't being served, there's probably reasons to that. So are we talking about credit? Are we talking about class? Are we talking about vehicle pricing? Are we talking about parts of the population who don't regularly see enough of their own representation in in visual communications, right? What exactly are you trying to say and who are you saying it to, you know? Or you can just keep saying, hey, you know, Bob's trucks is right down the street. And there's going to be a... uh... There's going to be a level of depth that you're going to be able to connect with your audience if that's the surface level that you're going to stay at. And, and you know, for some organizations, maybe that's fine. But for many, especially people who at least are kind of converted over to this social media for good idea of really trying to make social media a landscape where healthy online communities can grow, then the extra level of work has to happen. With it's every not, account, not with every message. Right. And it has to be a boundary locked tight. I am unwilling to put content out that has not gone through this lens. It has to be a boundary like that. It has to. Um, the, the simple, the simple thing of there's no simple thing of it, but I think like the, the clearest thing I know, what does Oprah say? Like 
here, this is, this is the thing I know, or what okay. she has, mm -hmm. like when she's saying a statement, um, the thing that I know is that humans are inherently self-centered and it's how we stay alive. Cool. Mm -hmm. But the other thing I know is that humans are resilient learners. If they choose to be, mm -hmm. we can learn things and we can feel our feelings about that and we can continue moving forward, but it, it requires choice. And so I think that like, if you're wanting to do your use social media for good, then you, you get out of the product mode because I didn't buy my car from the dealership based on that dealership's reputation as much as I had a friend who worked there who told me I would be safe in that purchase and transaction, right? Mm -hmm. I don't, I, I don't, I don't buy, you know, most of us will buy something from someone we know or someone who, who know that someone we know who knows someone, right? Like, which, you know, which burger joint am I going to go to? If I'm new to a town, I'm going to ask people. So that's, that's a product thing. But if we're talking about building healthy online communities, it seems like we would, we would want to not, not talk about products or services, but talk about the reasons we want those products or services or the values that those products and services represent, or what do we have in common? What do we have in community? that makes this product or service something, you know, that, that matters. Mm -hmm. um, I, I bought a Subaru. I did not understand. I didn't mean to buy a Subaru. Actually, it was totally accident. <laughs> Different story. I bought a Subaru and I had no idea that buying a Subaru is a thing. Now I know it's a popular thing, especially in our region, like they're everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, and I bought, I bought an Ascent, which is like the SUV, right? And I, and I love it. And I'm like, my favorite thing ever. Um, <laughs> but a uh, road trip. Um, so I did not know, though, that Subaru owners are an audience. And they have similar values. And they have similar lifestyles. Because what? There's a price point, right? And they have similar um, desires for how they want to use their cars. I had okay. like, no idea that I was becoming part of something bigger than myself in this way. <laughs> Cause I'm like, I need a car that I can take on road trips for trainings. You know, like mm -hmm. that was my whole thing. And, and it's really interesting though, because now of course, because I own a Subaru, I pay attention to the Subaru messaging and they know their audience. Mm. And so much of the stuff that I see is values based, right? There's another car company who is um, focusing on, um, on what I will say is like up and coming or, um, uh, social mobility oriented, um, Audi young black families. Right. Oh, okay. I don't know if it's, uh, it's, it's one of, I think it might be Lexus. Okay. And the commercials seem to be very, very intentional. And I'm pretty sure that those that they, they worked really hard to take. It's not about the car. Mm -hmm. It's just not about the car. The car is in there. There's a car shot. They do a little car thing. Um, but they talk about, you want to be around people who understand who you are. And this is about who we are. Mm -hmm. right? And they're doing a beautiful job of, I would say, being culturally humble and culturally competent. But they're also paying attention to the fact that in America, Black communities are, are struggling um, to, uh, to feel safe. No, I shouldn't even say it that way. Black communities have been harmed so much mm. that, and ignored and neglected. And so, so they're, yeah, there, there isn't also, a sense of safety. 
there isn't a sense of safety and there isn't a sense of understanding. And so they went for safety and understanding. And I was like, well, that's smart. Now, is it also pandering to their audience? Sure. They're a car company. That's what they're supposed to do. But they chose to do it well and with respect for their audience. Mm -hmm. And respecting your audience is part of being trauma-informed, right? Mm, I love it. I have like 17 more questions I wish I could ask you, but we're coming to close to the end. So um, if folks have questions and want to post them, you know, in the, in the um, comments, then we can also follow up. Perfect. Okay. When we post the link, we'll have discussion around it there and you're always amazing. So I'd love to bring you back again for a whole nother topic sometime soon. The last, the last question that I always ask though, as we come to the end is I like to kind of, you know, we spoke conceptually for a little while. Um, but now I want to kind of turn the mirror back, um, because part of social media for good is our personal relationships with social media too. Um, what we're doing in the dark alone with our phones, how long we're scrolling, how comfortable we are with our own social media use. So, so tell me about your relationship with social media. How, how you, how you two doing right now? Um, I use Facebook for work and for connection. Uh, it's interesting. I, um, I'm a verbal processor, so lots of typing, Mm. Mm -hmm. um, but I find I'm, I've been really overwhelmed. So I'm scrolling Facebook and it's doom scrolling. I can see it's like, it's, it's very, um, what's the word? Not addictive. I mean, it is, but like mindless. Yeah. Like, it's just almost like a, like a tick. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I've been, I've been more aware that my brain, when I'm really overwhelmed, I'm just like, I just want to do this. (laughs) <laughs> and just take in 90 miles an hour of information just but barely take it in yeah well because I also liked a bunch of stuff so a lot of the stuff I see I'm like yay mm-hmm. um so there's that I'm aware of that and that's not good so I want to I want to make that better I don't know how TikTok works right <laughs> but I I love me some TikTok because the algorithm shows you more of what you liked and so I went through and found some things that I knew I would like and then they say the for you thing and it's all because of what I liked. It was positive and uplifting and cultural competent. It was people sharing their cultures and things that matter to them in positive ways, or it's funny, but not in like, not in mean spirited ways. And I know that there's, I know that there's different areas of TikTok, right? But my little zone of TikTok is so life affirming that I get on TikTok when I'm stressed, I get on TikTok and I'm just Joy. it's just joy because it's oh, human that's wonderful it's, yeah it's not overproduced it's humans being authentic and goofy and and imperfect and and just, just hilarious <laughs> um, so that's my joy spot right there and i but i don't give myself permission to go on there because i'll 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 just i'll do it is what i'm an adhd brain so one minute at a time oh mm-hmm. my god <laughs> um, and this is I'm, you know consumption and then today i joined snapchat again oh you did well, because one of my kids is on Snapchat and I wanted to be able to talk to them more. And so I was like, well, I mean, I think all of my kids are probably on Snapchat, but like the one that I wanted to talk to more uses Snapchat and doesn't really use the other one. Mm-hmm. So I was like, okay, I tried okay. to use it once a couple of years ago. I am old and Snapchat is not for me. And I don't <laughs> understand. I don't understand how it worked, but my assistant, Emma, um, she was my, she connected with me on the Snapchat and, um, if I can figure out how it works, I'll be very excited. It's just another level of research that you've got to do so that you can see through the Snapchat lens. You can be informed about the Snapchat world. You can do this. I just, I don't like it. Yes. Yeah. Shameless change. I know. 
Shameless change. <laughs> you can do this. Right? <laughs> okay. So, yeah, so, you know, it could be better, but it could be worse. And TikTok is my happy place. Good. I love it. That makes me happy. All right. Well, I will bring you back on soon to talk some more. I, the, one of the questions I'm sad I didn't make space for is I would love to just pick your brain on what you think the worst thing is about social media and how we can address it. So think on that for next no, it's time. Short, it's a short answer. Is it? What is yeah. it? Our own behavior. Ooh. Created by humans for humans and humans make social media shit. So there's nothing worse about social media. I mean, other than like algorithms and, you know, all of that nonsense, or I don't know, things where policies like shut down pages and ad buying for stupid reasons, Facebook, I'm coming for you. Um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) But, um, you know, besides that, but no, it's just our behavior. Our behavior Mm -hmm. is the worst thing about social media. And I'll own my own too. I go off sometimes and then I'm like, oh, I'm an idiot. I got to not do that. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. Well, we'll do it. We'll do a whole nother podcast on something like that soon. Okay. I like it. All right. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for your time. Um, you can look for Delina and her organization as a uh, way enough decision coaching. And you can also look at deviant compassion consulting. I'm so excited to see your new brand coming out and I wait. Give, me, July, July. give me some shameless change merch pretty quick. I'll, I'll adorn so that like, like crazy. Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time and we will talk to all of you soon. And in the meantime, we hope that you will keep learning. Bye. Bye.